service. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Badlands listeners, are you here? Are you with me? Are you too tired to go to bed? Too riled up to stay home? I know I am. This is another podcast that comes after the podcast. Welcome to Badlands, the rap party. Welcome to the Badlands bonus episode, another thing we like to call the rap party. Just like that other show, this is a show that comes after the show, a voyage from one episode of Badlands to the other, the backlot breakdown of sorts. On this episode, we are talking about Roman Polanski, the greatest movies of the 70s, Wes Anderson's new Asteroid City, plus my recommendations and your movie-focused voicemails, texts, DMs, and more. Badlands listeners, I'm sick, but I don't care, so let's get into it. Greetings, brothers and sisters, and welcome to the rap party. Let's dive right into Roman Polanski. Uh, I just grossed myself out after saying that. Um, <laughs> playing Hurt today, guys. Uh, my head's all over the place. Got a bad, 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 bad stomach thing happening here. So forgive me if this is one of the more uh, rando episodes. But I am here. You are here. We are all together, as a wise man once said. So let's dive right in. The summary on this week's subject of Badlands goes as follows. As a child, Roman Polanski uh, escaped from a Krakow ghetto on the day that the Nazis took his father to a concentration camp. I can't even imagine what that was like. As a young filmmaker, Roman to Roman Polanski, Roman Polanski, people don't really, I don't know if they know this or not, but he was like the first rock star director, the toast of young Hollywood. Uh, his 1968, there's a lot leading up to it from his career, but his 1968 masterpiece, Rosemary's Baby, just made the guy. Uh, while he was abroad making a new film, his wife, who we've covered numerous times in various episodes, even her own episode, his wife, Sharon Tate, the actress Sharon Tate, and hers and Roman's unborn child, as you know, were brutally murdered in their home uh, by members of the Charles Manson family, uh, Sharon Tate and her child, not Roman Polanski. Polanski came back from shooting his film. He was a mess, became paranoid long before the cops arrested Charles Manson. Uh, 
all of his friends were suspected, his inner circle. Like, no one knew what the hell was going on. It was a really weird time in Hollywood if you were an A-list celebrity, as Roman Polanski was, even though he was a director. But he hung with A-list celebrities, A-list actors and actresses. Um, no one knew what was up. People like Bruce Lee, John Phillips from The Mamas and Papas, uh, Steve McQueen, all these guys were embroiled, mixed up in this thing. Warren Beatty, things went downhill from the, after that for Polanski, okay? In 1977, Roman Polanski committed himself. He committed a heinous crime involving an underage girl. Uh, I'm not going to go into that all here. You can hear about that in the episode. Uh, it was so bad, he ended up having to flee the country in early 1978 to avoid being sentenced to a long, lengthy prison term. And he has lived on the lam outside of the United States ever since. All right, so this crime that Roman Polanski was involved in, uh, th the thing I want to talk about here, the crime took place at the house of Polanski's good friend, Jack Nicholson. Y'all know who Jack Nicholson is. Uh, as you might remember from our Jack Nicholson episode back in the 1970s, Jack's house was the house for Hollywood parties, uh, sort of like Roman Polanski's house was for Hollywood parties back in the 60s. Whatever happened at Jack's, stayed at Jack's, all that kind of bullshit. The thing is, Jack Nicholson wasn't there when Roman Polanski brought an underage girl there for a quote-unquote photo shoot. Um, it's not like Jack Nicholson greenlit Polanski's plan at all. I'm not insinuating that. Uh, he, of course, did not know what Roman Polanski was up to. Uh, after it happened, Jack Nicholson started getting a lot of unwanted attention from his buddy's crime, uh, attention from the LAPD. And, you know, this crime that Roman Polanski committed at Jack Nicholson's house a lot of stuff came out of that, including, like I mentioned, Roman Polanski's uh, having to go on the lam and having to live outside of the law in the United States for the remainder of his life and career. But also the creative collaboration between Roman Polanski and Jack Nicholson, it effectively ended there. Um, this happened in the 1970s, and of course this happened after Roman Polanski and Jack Nicholson made a movie called Chinatown. One of the greatest movies of all time. This movie's from 1974. Uh, it's the only film that they made together. It's one of the best, you know, you might not think it's one of the best movies of all time. I actually don't know if I think it's one of the best movies of all time, but it is cited as such. It is definitely one of the best film noirs of all time. We were talking about film noir in the last episode. Um, features one of the greatest screenplays ever written. If you talk to people who understand how screenplays are made, uh, what they should actually do to impact what becomes the movie. This was written by a guy named Robert Town. It's often cited as one of the greatest screenplays. There's even a book written about the screenplay. Um, has one of the best cameos in it by a director in their own film. If you've seen Chinatown, <laughs> you probably know that Polanski is the little guy who, uh, spoiler alert, uh, slices Jack's nose in half, which is the reason why Jack's character, Jake Giddis, has a band on his nose for most of the film. But, okay, here's what I want to talk about. It's all a long lead up to get into this subject that I've referenced a lot and, um, you know, and I, I probably haven't done it enough service given how big this topic is in my, in my, in my mind all the time and has been in my formative years uh, growing up and, and making stuff, even though I've never made films or anything like that, but just in making music. And that is 70s movies. This all happens in the 70s. And like I said, Chinatown came out in the 70s. The crime that Polanski committed came out in the 70s. And the collaboration between Polanski and Nicholson ended in the 70s. Okay, here are the films Roman Polanski made during the 1970s. Macbeth, uh, that's from 1971. It's an adaptation of the Shakespeare play. At the time, it was notorious for the graphic violence and the nudity. I've never seen this. I want to see it. <laughs> um, it received funding from Hugh Hefner. 
uh, from Playboy. Uh, this is the first movie that Roman Polanski makes after his wife is murdered. I don't even know what to think about that. Uh, 1972, a movie called What? Uh, never heard of this. Maybe you have. It's a comedy set in the coast of Italy. Um, it's supposedly uh, a, a, a shitty film, uh, but I don't know. But then, 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 1974, Chinatown. Okay, 76, The Tenant, which is a psychological horror film that Polanski stars in. 1979, he makes Tess. It's an adaptation of a Tess of Dubavez, if I'm saying that correctly, I'm probably not. Um, and that's and that's the 70s for Roman Polanski. The 70s for Jack Nicholson, okay? Uh, five. E There's a bunch here, I'm not going to read you all of them, but Five Easy Pieces, uh, great movie, for which Jack Nicholson was uh, received an Oscar nomination. 1971, Colonel Knowledge, which I actually saw a couple weeks ago. Um, uh, what else do I want to mention here? Oh, Last Detail from 1973. I didn't realize he was nominated for another Oscar for that. 1974, Chinatown. 75, he does Tommy, The Passenger, The Fortune, and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, another Oscar nomination. And then 1976, The Missouri Breaks and The Last Tycoon, 78, Going South. And then I know it's 1980, but I have to mention The Shining because obviously he was working on that in the 70s. So just a tremendous 70s output by Jack Nicholson. And I mean, some of these movies that Jack does in the 70s, particularly One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and Chinatown are objectively two of the greatest movies ever made. But then you also have five easy pieces uh, in the last detail. And I, I mean, you can, you can throw in a bunch of these other ones too if you want to, but it just goes to show how incredible a decade it was for filmmaking. One guy. Yeah, I could probably do the same thing here with uh, Al Pacino, uh, with Robert Redford, with Paul Newman for sure. Um Maybe even Robert De Niro, I believe. I'm trying to think of his 70s output. Taxi Driver, of course. But there are so many. You can just go through the list of, of A-list uh, actors, actresses, and A-list directors, like I just did with Jack Nicholson and Roman Polanski, and list out their output from that decade, from the 1970s, and your jaw is on the floor. The 70s, to me, are and always will be the greatest decade for filmmaking, Um the older I get and the in the further away it gets in the rearview mirror, the decade of the 90s is the second greatest decade to me. And uh, maybe if you talk to me in 10 years, the 90s will have equaled the 70s. <laughs> but if you try to list your top five movies of all time, um, you know, you could go all 70s movies for sure. Um, but I wouldn't. There's 90s movies that I would have in there for sure, and perhaps even some 80s films. So this is this thing that, you know, we haven't asked, and it's such an obvious question, and I'm just going to do it because I really want to know what you guys think, and I want to be prompted to go watch other movies uh, that I have not seen, perhaps, and to revisit some from the 70s that I have already seen. But I want to know the top five movies of the 1970s. It's such a basic question, but it's such an important question. And to me, the list starts with Jaws. And then it has two, possibly three films by the same filmmaker, <laughs> Francis Ford Coppola. Definitely Godfather 1, definitely Godfather 2. Um, and I, Apocalypse Now? Mm, probably. And I guess that's, I mean, that's four if you take, if you take, I don't know, if you take Apocalypse Now off, you got to talk about Taxi Driver by Martin Scorsese. And I would even look to Friends of Eddie Coyle I mean, but that's like, 
that's me being kind of obscure for the sake of being obscure and trying to stoke conversation. Slapshot with Paul Newman is one of my favorite movies of all time. It's one of those movies that I've probably watched almost as much as like Goodfellas or Jaws. Uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. We talked about that earlier. I mean, this doesn't even get into Star Wars and then the sci-fi stuff that was going on. There's so, so, so much happening in the 70s. I'm going to give you my top five right here, okay? And uh, I'm not going to stand firmly behind this list. This is more just a a list that I'm coming with you off the top of my head. And it's also in part to stoke some conversation. Number one, Jaws. Number two, Godfather. Number three, Taxi Driver. Number four, Slapshot. And number five, damn, this is hard. I mean, Friends of Eddie Coyle. Not Chinatown. Not Godfather 2. Actually, Godfather 2 is better than Friends of Eddie Coyle. What the fuck am I talking about? (laughs) Okay, one more time. Jaws, Godfather 1, Taxi Driver, Godfather 2, Slapshot. That's my five. That's my five from the 70s. Give me five from the 70s. 617-906-6638. Top five movies from the 1970s. Get fucking weird on me. Uh, get basic with me. Do whatever you want to do. I, like I said, I want I want to hear inspired, impassioned reasons for why you're into these movies more than you are the movies that I mentioned so much so that I am compelled to go watch movies that I've seen a gazillion times through uh, through the eyes of you guys and also perhaps get into some films from the 70s that I'm not even aware of uh, or some others that I haven't mentioned here. 617-906-6638. Top five movies from the 1970s. Hit me. Hit me hard at Disgraceland Pod as well. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Threads, YouTube, your fucking light post at the end of the road, your VHS, your Blu-ray. I'm everywhere, man. At Disgraceland Pod, 617-906-6638. Got to take a quick break. Back in a flash. All right, we are back. You are back. You know, there's always a music connection. We talk about that in these Badlands episodes, even though they're Hollywood. I can't help but seek out what these music connections are. And in these past episodes of Badlands and even in Disgraceland, we've done a lot of talk about Charles Manson, Roman Polanski, and of course, uh, the connections between Hollywood in 1969 when the Tate LaBianca murders happened and uh, and the music industry. And of course, Sharon Tate was best friends with Mama Cass Elliot from the Mamas and the Papas. And there was, you know, there was a whole Beach Boy. Terry Melcher thing going on. I'm not going to revisit all that, but I found this one little musical nugget connected to Roman Polanski that I thought was interesting that I would share with you guys. Um, Polanski eventually had a stage adaptation of his 1967 film, The Fearless Vampire Killers, called, I'm going to mess this up, Le Ball des Vampires. Whoever's mixing this, Sean, Matt, if I mispronounce that, Whatever, dude. I'm not going to go back and redo it. <clears throat> All right. Uh, so this this 
this came out in 2014, all right? So well after the crime that Polanski was involved in, Polanski directed this production, the stage production. He even showed up to give a bow at the premiere in, in, uh, in Paris. Uh, but here's a wild part. The songs for this musical were written by none other than a guy named Jim Steinman. Uh, this is the guy who wrote the entirety of Meatloaf's Bad Out of Hell album, also wrote Bonnie Tyler's Total Eclipse of the Heart, great song, um, which features prominently in that Roman Polanski musical. I thought that was interesting. All right, moving on. The number one movie from the episode on Roman Polanski is Close Encounters of the Third Kind, another movie that could very well be on that list of greatest movies from the 1970s. This was the number one movie, uh, Steven Spielberg, number one movie on February 1st, 1978, grossed $116 million in the United States, $288 million worldwide. In 1978, that's a lot of money. Um, the time was the most successful Columbia Pictures movie ever, okay? Um, we talked about Polanski movies in the 70s. Here's a couple from the 60s, just so we're, we're getting the totality of the guy's output here. Um, Knife in the Water, Repulsion, Cul-de-Sac, Fearless Vampire Killers that I just mentioned, and of course, Rosemary's Baby. You can't talk about Roman Polanski and not talk about Rosemary's Baby. And to just, you know... I mean, this thing, this movie was a phenomenon. It was something that was just as zeitgeisty as zeitgeisty got at the time. I think I said 1969. It was 1968. Uh, this, you know, pretty much launches the career of Mia Farrow uh, in the superstardom. This is when she's married to Frank Sinatra. It's when Polanski's the toast of the town. He can do whatever the hell he wants. He scared people in a film, but it wasn't a monster film, which was unique for the time. It was a psychological thriller. Of course, it was about Satanism, but it barely even really is overtly about Satanism until the end. It's just scary as fuck. Um, okay, so we mentioned the 70s. That's the 60s stuff. We mentioned the 70s stuff, the 80s output. Now, remember, this is Polanski when he's in exile in France. Uh, 86 Pirates, 88 Frantic, 92 Bitter Moon, 94 Death in the Maiden, 99 The Ninth Gate. I haven't seen any of these. If any of these are worth watching, let me know. Then, in 2002, he makes a movie called, or I'm sorry, a movie is released that Polanski made that is called The Pianist. Uh, and I remember this when it happened. I remember Polanski winning Best Director for this. Uh, but he wasn't, he wasn't at the award show. Uh, they announced it at the award show. He was still a fugitive from justice. And I remember the response he got. And it was a positive response. 2002. Never happened today. 2005, Oliver Twist. 2010, The Ghost Rider. 2011, Carnage. 2013, Venus and Fur. 2017, Based on a True Story. 2019, An Officer and a Spy. 2023, coming out this fall, he has a movie called The Palace. I Again, I haven't seen any of these. <clears throat> uh, if anyone has and they're any good, let me know. All right? Uh, that is the Roman Polanski side of the street. Let's get into some of the stuff we've been talking about here. You guys have been awesome sending in the uh, the direct messages, the voicemails, the texts. Let's do a couple voicemails here uh, from the 661 uh, coming in from Santa Clarita, California. Hey, Todd from Santa Clarita, California. The best summer movie ever of all time is absolutely Jaws. No question. You know, I played this voicemail because I want to kind of you got to kind of put this these conversations to bed at some point. I mean, we, we're still talking about things that I mentioned months ago, and I'm happy to keep doing that. But this is a definitive answer, and I agree with it 100%. Jaws is the greatest summer movie of all time. 
I can make a case that it's the greatest movie of all time. Um, I know, I know people are rolling their eyes. I know people think my, my, my film taste is, uh, is a little sus as my nine year old says, but, uh, I, I can back it up. I mean, Jaws is Jaws. There's not, there's not one ounce of filler in this movie. It is so economical. It is so at the same time, it is entertaining. It is thrilling beyond what one could expect at a movie theater experience in the 1970s. I didn't see this in the theater. I was too young. Um, this got its hooks into me when I was a teenager, and I've been on the line with Jaws ever since to finish the metaphor. It's one of those movies that I watch every couple months. I just like to check in on old friends, Brody, Quint, and I'm always entertained. I'm still finding out new things about the characters, about the movie, about uh, how films are made by watching this. It's that freaking good. <laughs> and it was made in, um, in my state, in Massachusetts, where I grew up, but it was made in Martha's Vineyard, a place that I never went to until I was an adult. And as soon as I went to Martha's Vineyard, I fell in love with it. Uh, because I had been going to Martha's Vineyard sort of in my head via Jaws for uh, most of my teenage and, and early adult years. Martha's Vineyard has become a place that my, my family and I have come to love. We've gone every summer. It's the first summer in seven years that we haven't gone. Uh, we're taking a different trip this this summer vacation, and I've been bummed about it. Um, I, I, I drive around Martha's Vineyard every summer and I do my own little mini Jaws tour. I know where everything is. I know where everything happened. <laughs> everything from where Quint's boat takes off to where Chief Brody buys the paint, the paintbrushes, um, just, you know, filled with all kinds of great nostalgia. Um, of course, when I was a kid growing up, we didn't have sharks up here in Massachusetts. And now we have, uh, great whites that, uh, ironically, is it, ir is it irony? Is it irony that they're all over Martha's Vineyard right now? Um, it's just, it's something and it's scary as hell. Uh, my kids go in the water and I'm literally sitting there like Chief Brody on the beach uh, the day after they, they find that dead girl. But before it's it's known that uh, there's a shark in the water and uh, right before that little Kittner boy gets it. Um, but anyways, yeah, Love Jaws, personal connection, obviously. Um, great, 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 great movie and definitely the best summer movie of all time. All right, let's check out one from another New Englander here, Mark from the 401, calling in reference to our latest episode on Jane Mansfield. Jake, this is Mark from Providence. Just heard your uh, Jane Mansfield episode regarding her life, and I I think I may have heard that one before, but I definitely knew the story. But it brought me back to a very good place. Uh, in 2012, there was a movie that was uh, uh Release called Jane Mansfield's Car it had nothing to do with Jane Mansfield, but it had something. It had everything to do with uh, a, a former Ku Klux Klansman, Robert Duvall, and his three children, uh, his ex-wife and his ex-wife's new husband, who were all proper and from England, and they came over to visit. Uh, his his children were um, Billy Bob Thornton. Um, and a couple of others that were Pat, uh, Robert Patrick couple of others that were kind of funny. And uh, if you haven't seen it, get a look at it. Thanks a lot for that episode. It was uh, it was great to hear it. First thing in the morning, on a Wednesday morning, great to hear it. Thank you. Love all you do. Rock and roll. 
Okay, never heard of this, Mark. Jane Mansfield's Car, I will check this out. Sounds like an amazing cast. Uh, never heard of this movie before. Sounds incredible. Thank you for the message. Appreciate it. Let's get into some texts. All right, last time we spoke, uh, we put up the question for the best movies about music. This one's from the 814. Jake, here's my top four movies about music. The Last Waltz, great documentary with a killer lineup. Even better stories of the guys in the band. Yes, I would agree. Is it about, I guess it's a movie about music, but I always look at that as a concert film. That's a great concert film. So I'm not sure that that answers what I was looking for, but it is without a doubt great. The Commitments. Okay. Uh, Irish Kids. I know this movie paying tribute in the 60s and 70s. Soul and R&B. Great movie. Saw that when it came out in the theater. Streets of Fire. Great soundtrack with an impressive cast. Yes, it is. And my father-in-law is in that movie prominently. He's uh, he's in the band. And I know, I know that whole band. I've known him my whole life. Um, even before my wife was my wife. Uh, also, Eddie and the Cruisers. Uh, yes, great one. Buddy of mine went to see Eddie and the Cruisers. <laughs> John Cafferty and the Beaver. Beaver Brown Band. John Hastings, I'm talking to you, brother. Sent me a pic from the show a couple weeks ago. Um, both Streets of Fire and Eddie and the Cruisers star Michael Pear. 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 How do you say that? Um, all right, great one. Love it. Thanks. Thanks, 814. Great text. Let's see. What else we got here? 410 writes in and just gets into it here with uh, Badlands. Favorite movies are Silverado and A Fish Called Wanda. I love all things Monty Python. What is Silverado? Isn't that a Western? Um, not sure if Monty Python is eligible for a Badlands episode because there's not any actual true crime. But according to censors in the ABC network, there's plenty of controversy surrounding his brand of humor. Plenty of lawsuits, including one with the sounds of John Denver getting strangled. <laughs> Ah, parentheses, his sniper skills could have come in handy. Yes, uh, that's true. I'll look into that. That's a good idea. Monty Python episode. All right, let's see what we got here. Uh, 302 just says, Jaws is the greatest summer movie. Yes, 302. It is. We just went over that. 480 writes in, hello. When I listen to podcasts, I like to save up episodes to listen while I work, which is why I'm now listening to the Carrie Fisher episode. Yeah, you're late, 480. Uh, Forido goes on to say, I love her in Soap Dish, small role. I remember this movie. I remember this. This was awesome. It's a small role, but hilarious as she plays an exec in a popular soap opera. Stars Sally Field, Kevin Klein, Whoopi Goldberg, and Robert Downey Jr. Thanks for entertaining me at my job so I don't go insane. You got it, Forido. Now I want to watch Soap Dish again. All right, from the 978, greetings from Andover, Mass. Well, what's up, neighbor? Goes on to say, love the podcast, Jake. Apparently, Grace Kelly was involved with the cult, the Solar Temple, and when her car crashed, causing her death, she crashed in the yard of a head member. Crazy, right? XX, Liz. Damn, I did not know any of that. Zeth, that sounds like an episode. We should get into that. All right, thanks for the text, 617-906-6638. Text me, voicemail me. I love to hear your voice. The sounds of your voice. Hit me up, all right? Let me know what's going on. Um, but let's get into some DMs. I feel like I've been neglecting the old DM machine here. Hold on one second. All right. On Facebook, Gretchen Lambert Olson writes in, Jake, your response about never, Jake, your response about not talking about cheese, never. Very Benicio Del Torre from Denimora. Have you seen that? Great series. I have. I loved that series. thought that was fantastic. All right, Andrew Rosdell writes in, I don't think it's better than the original, but a remake of The Manchurian Candidate from 2004 with Denzel, Liev Shriver, and Meryl Streep is pretty damn good. The original is classic, so it's hard to beat, but this movie gives it the old college try. Little Shop of Horrors might qualify. This is us talking about 
uh, remakes that are better than the originals. Um, weird area of movie based on an off-Broadway musical based on a Roger Corman B movie. I know the film well. Uh, Frank Oz, 86. Yeah, Rick Moranis. Leaps and Bounds, better than the low-budget film from 1960. Uh, primarily noteworthy for featuring a young Jack Nicholson. I didn't know that. Playing a masochist at the dentist's office. <laughs> <laughs> forgot about that role. That's a good one. Uh, I want to check that out now. The original by Roger Corman. Didn't know that about Little Shop of Horrors. Uh, Tracy writes in on Instagram, uh, hey, had a uh, similar feeling about Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Great movie that I did not enjoy from a great director who's made some of my favorite movies. And then Tracy goes on to say, don't miss Spanish Prisoner, another mammoth heist movie starring Steve Martin. Saw that a long time ago, Tracy. Thanks for prompting it because I'm going to go watch that again. Uh, let's see here. This one, uh, from another one from Andrew Rosdale says also piggybacking off of a previous comment about the JFK assassination. A caller mentioned the death of JFK caused the movie Dr. Strangelove to be delayed. And it also resulted in a couple changes. Firstly, the line, shoot, a fellow could have a pretty good weekend in Dallas with all that stuff. It was changed to Vegas. I see why it's a good little, good little film history tidbit there. Andrew Rosdale. Appreciate that. You guys, at Disgraceland Pod on Instagram, on Twitter, Facebook. Hit me up. Twitter's now called X, I guess. Uh, whatever. You know, that's cool. <laughs> We're still called at Disgraceland Pod, so hit us up. I'm going to take a quick break, and we'll be back in a couple seconds with some recommendations. All right, we are back, and this is the other recommendations part of the part of the other show where we recommend the movies and the television content, the recommendations part, the part where we discuss the movies and television we're recommending. This is the recommendations part here in the Badlands Rap Party bonus episode number one. I am watching Steve McQueen and Ali McGraw in The Getaway, and I think I love it. Uh, I think I really love it, uh, but it is... Uh, you know, it's a fucked up movie to watch with today's eyes for a lot of different reasons. I don't just mean Steve McQueen slapping Ally McGraw around. And then, of course, we know what happened there in real life. Um, but I do mean just from a filmmaking perspective. I don't think this is Peckinpah's best movie. Peckinpah's best movie to me is, um, oh, God, this is in my top five for greatest 70s movies as well. Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Definitely in my top five. How the fuck is that going to fit in there? Uh, that's my favorite Peck and Paw movie of all time. The Getaway, though, damn good. Highly recommend it. Also, I watched um, Wes Anderson's new movie, Asteroid City, which I really liked. I liked it a lot. And I liked it a lot more than his last movie, uh, The French Dispatch, which I didn't like all that much. But like that last movie, there's a lot going on here that... I'm just going to be honest and say, I don't understand. I don't really understand what he's doing with the A line and the B plot lines. Um, I, I, you know, of course I get that, get it on face value, but it's, 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 there's this weird inversion in storytelling that's happening that is, that is super unique. And I know he's stealing it from someone. I just don't know what it is or where it's coming from. And I don't get the reference, but I will. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm usually not into movies that that want to that want to make me think. Um, I am into this one, uh, not not necessarily because of that, 
but it isn't the type of thing that's alienating me. Uh, I think the acting in it is fantastic. Liev Schreiber, uh, Steve Carell, these guys have tiny, tiny roles. Uh, Adrian Brody, who was also in The Pianist, Roman Polanski film. Uh, see how that works. Um, but also Scarlett Johansson, fantastic, fantastic. Jason Schwartzman, Tom Hanks, just when you thought you've seen Tom Hanks do everything Tom Hanks can do, he does something totally different. Of course he does. And he's fucking awesome. Um, in the movie, it's Wes Anderson, so of course it looks incredible. Uh, I, I have friends who can't stand Wes Anderson movies, and I don't get it. I mean, I get their reasoning, but I don't agree with it. And Wes Anderson keeps upping the ante with his films, and this one visually is hyper surreal and looks unlike anything he's done before. Um, and all this is to say, it makes me kind of want to reconsider The French Dispatch and go back and watch that film. Have you guys seen Asteroid City? Have you seen The French Dispatch? Let me know what you think. Let me know what you think of both of them. Uh, 617-906-6638. It's always fun to talk about Wes Anderson movies. Uh, I want to hear from those of you who hate Wes Anderson films because you make me laugh. No, because I get it on one hand, but also because you make me laugh. Um, the guy's wholly unique in a great filmmaker. Uh, but I get I get if you don't like it. I do. Sometimes shit just rubs people the wrong way. Um, but let me know. Let me know your favorite Wes Anderson films. I'm trying to think of my favorite one. And it's it's hard. It's very, very difficult. Royal Tenenbaums, I think. I think. I don't know, but then Bottle Rocket. It's so damn good. It's so damn classic. But it's also, it's so now just, it's like a fucking hanging chad on the rest of his filmography. It's so different. Um, but yeah, let me know. Wes Anderson. Let's get into it. 617-906-6638 at Disgraceland Pod. I also watched Crime Wave, the 1954 film noir um, Sterling Hayden, one of the best film noirs that I've ever seen, uh, looks incredible still to this day. And I'm not going to pretend I know why I don't, but if you're into noir, you want, you're looking for something in the fifties to start with. This is, this is a good one. Crime wave. I don't know why we're doing this summer film noir thing, but we are. All right. Um, this is also relative to Badlands. I'm reading Finally, I've had this book since it came out. I haven't cracked it. And I cracked it yesterday and I haven't been able to put it down and I haven't been feeling well. So it's kind of perfect. I've just given myself the space to, to chill out and read uh, uh, Quentin Tarantino's adaption, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, the novel. And uh, I thought this would be like, you know, good fan service at best, kind of annoying um, at worst. And it's exceeded my expectations it is, you know, the best filmmakers I'm learning, when they invent characters, you only see a tenth of what they've created in the final product on screen. There is um, so much backstory that, they, that, these, that these writers create to, to be able to fuck with subtext when it actually comes to the filming of the, of the script. And to actually get the characters to work in ways emotionally that they wouldn't otherwise be able to do if there wasn't all this backstory. This this book is like <laughs> a deep dive into the mind of Quentin Tarantino as it pertains to the characters in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And the fun part of it is he uses these characters as vessels to explore his favorite films. And he has this incredible riff in the beginning pages um, – uh, about foreign film in the 60s through the uh, 
through the lens of his main character, uh, Cliff, which is who was played by Brad Pitt, um, the stuntman, who <laughs> you wouldn't know it from the movie, is this total foreign film head. And there's an, an amazing reason as to why. Um, but he's not pretentious about it in any way. He's Cliff. And, you know, Quentin Tarantino is is very unpretentious in a lot of ways. He's super pretentious in others. But I think when it comes to foreign films, uh, it's safe to say that he is unpretentious. And he uses Cliff as, as a vessel to shred through some sacred cows of foreign film, particularly uh, Truffaut and Fellini. And it's just hysterical. Also... The novel is not a sort of beat-by-beat beat linear representation of the film that goes a little deeper into the characters. It's shaping up to be its own story almost, where what happens in the film doesn't necessarily um, dictate how things happen in the novel. And it's it's surprising to me, and it reads like something new and exciting. And if you are the type of person who someone said to me recently, you know, when I when I read something, uh, I know it's great. When when I put it down and I immediately start thinking about it again, and I start searching online um, uh, information relevant to the story historically, whatever. This is like you know, I'm sure if you're a huge fan of Quentin Tarantino or a huge fan of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, after that film, you know, you know, you've watched it numerous times, but afterwards you're just like, shit, man, I just want more, I want more from these characters. This is that, this is that fan service I was talking about, but it is so much more, and uh, I'm almost halfway through. And I'll probably finish it by the next time I record another Badlands episode. And uh, I'm going to keep talking about it because it's got me totally stoked. All right. So what are you reading relevant to the film world? Uh relevant to our interest here in Badlands, 617-906-6638 for your movie recommendations, television as well. Uh, let me know what you're watching. Uh, let me know if you read Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Let me know if you hated it. Zeth Lundy, I'm talking to you. I know you hated it. I know you didn't finish it. God damn it. Um, did you finish it? I don't actually know that, but I know you didn't like it. Uh, you're going to have to read it again. You just are. All right. Uh, at Disgraceland Pod as well. Quick break. Back to recap. Then I'm out of here. All right, let's recap, shall we? The obvious Roman Polanski episode of Badlands, the final episode of this season, season seven, is available in your feed right now, so go check that out. Number two, next week in Badlands, find out who's in the next season of Badlands. We're going to release our trailer for season eight. You're not going to want to miss that. Please share that. Send it to your friends, your parents, your mother, whoever. All right, number three, over in the Disgraceland feed, we've got a new episode on Merle Haggard available for you right now. A new episode on Sonny Rollins coming at you next week. These are fucking awesome episodes. I'm really proud of them. Uh, psyched to be digging more into country music and more into jazz. Number four, call me, 617-906-6638. Give me a call. You never call your mother. To get this Badlands movie conversation to continuously stoke. Number five, I got to split, got other podcasts to record, and I have to return some videotapes. So right now, a second dose of bliss for yours truly in honor of this week's Badlands episode, me reading the script from Chinatown. Chinatown, screenplay by Robert Town, October 9th, 1973, third draft. Fade in, full screen photograph, grainy but unmistakably a man and a woman making love. Photograph shakes, sound of a man moaning in anguish. 
the photograph is dropped, revealing another, more compromising photograph. Then another, and another, more moans. Curly's voice crying out, oh no, interior. Giddis's office. Curly drops the photos on Giddis's desk. Curly towers over Giddis and sweats heavily through his work and his clothes. His breathing progressively more labored. A drop plunks on Giddis's shiny desktop. Giddis meets him. Quit talking and start mixing! <laughs>